0: I feel like there was like one or two things I forgot to bring up. But, you know, I think uh, I was going to ask you about um, the risk for kids and technology with cell phones Mm. and the Internet and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of the research that I focused on for a while was the intersection of technology and sex trafficking. And I think, you know, zooming out, it's really about if we think about sex trafficking, it's not just about the victims and their risk factors. That's really important. Yes, of course. But it's also about the traffickers and it's also about the purchasers of sex. And so the ways that, you know, if we only focus on, well, what's happening with the children and putting them at risk, then we're not focusing on, well, what are sex buyers doing to solicit or to elicit a response from people? What are traffickers doing to build those relationships? Um, I think, yes, absolutely, technology puts youth at risk. Um, young people at risk you know people we know there's research and data that shows that young people feel like the internet is a safe place to meet people and they don't have the wherewithal to really put a lot of protective parameters in place of like oh i'm not going to give share my address i'm not going to post this picture where i'm now linking it to my exact location and in real time people can find you or Mm. see it because it's public Mm. i think you know the responsibility we need more education about that and the responsibility of caregivers to really have those conversations with youth but oftentimes caregivers don't really have the knowledge and information when technology is so rapidly changing.
0: Well, they, they're they also in somewhat engaging in the activity of posting all of their information online right. also. Right. It's hard to tell a kid not to do it when the parent is no, also I doing it. No, I completely
1: agree. I mean, I am on social media, and I internally feel a reaction when I see that parents have pictures of their children up in a bathtub or doing day-to-day activities. Their pages aren't private. Right, like things that should not be causes for concern are really alarming sometimes because we know that child pornography is real. We know that the social the social media is used as a tool to create conversations, to learn children's names, and then befriend them in public places. And so all of these things, you know, are really important to keep in mind. Why do you need a public profile for random strangers to like pictures of your children you know keep it safe keep it private don't post their names don't accept people followers who you don't know some of these like basic tips that really could potentially save a life i think are really really important um also i want to say before we move away from technology you know sex buyers use technology very frequently and there's entire networks and communities of sex buyers out there not just on the dark web but also just on the internet where you can google it you know i could pull up websites where it's community boards and it's these people who you know thousands of people involved in these online communities sharing tips on where to go and buy sex in a certain locality who to look for you know there is this website I won't name names, but there was this website that existed, and it was specifically developed for American men who were interested in crossing the border and going to Mexico to purchase sex in the Red Light District. And in that, on that website, there were millions of comments. There were thousands, tens of thousands of images. And oftentimes, it was images that a sex buyer took of someone that they purchased sex with that often did not know that that picture it was clear that they didn't know the picture was being taken right and so that happens also and that those pictures are then posted online conversations about how to negotiate for the best price on different sexual acts where to go where law enforcement is going to be so you should avoid that where the cartel is all of these things where it's like Sex buyers have created entire networks, given then have been given or given themselves the names of hobbyists, mm. right? Rather than a sex purchaser, a trafficker, an exploiter, and then going and very clearly exploiting people.
0: From the what we were talking about with the parents not posting those pictures to what you just discussed with the the social networks of mm-hmm. buyers. This is all cultural shift. Right. It's all cultural shift. Yeah. There's no like legal, there's legal things in place to, to address that, but it's right. culturally people are still think it's acceptable to do yeah. it.
1: And some of those legal parameters actually end up then criminalizing the people who are being victimized, mm. right? And so we have this whole idea of this victim de- defendant where it's like this kid was being sex trafficked, but now they're in the juvenile justice system on prostitution charges and being treated like a criminal. Or, you know, we know, for example, like sexting and sending images, even like when children send images, naked images of themselves um, or post images of themselves, it could be a federal crime. Yep. But children who are or young adults who are using online platforms are often forced to post those pictures. And so what happens in that case? You know, like oftentimes we, again, criminalize the people who are being victimized in some way.
0: My, my question, along not so much along those lines, is there, there are people that believe that the legalization of some forms of, say, prostitution um, would be a good thing for our society. Mm-hmm. What, are your, what are your thoughts on the legalization of prostitution?
1: I think that when we focus on legalizing prostitution, okay, I'm gonna start here. No one, no person who is engaging in commercial sex, in my opinion, should be criminalized. No person who is, you know, whether they're being sex trafficked or they're not currently being sex trafficked, but were formerly being sex trafficked and still engaging in commercial sexual activity. No person who is the person soliciting, who is, you know, performing the act should be criminalized, period.
0: Right. Across the board. Across the board. Okay.
1: I think that we need to decriminalize all folks who are engaging in any kind of commercial sexual activity. From the perspective of the person who is performing the act. I think that we need to target the sex buyers in particular. This is really delicate, but I want to be as mindful and respectful to people as I can be. Sure. And so when the focus is on legalizing the buying and selling of sex, we erase everything else that is interplaying with what has put that person in the position where they have to sell sex. Hmm. When we focus on legalizing it, it means that we're not having a conversation about their basic needs that aren't being met, about their history of childhood abuse and trauma, about their probably lack of education and other job opportunities, about their lack of training on other job opportunities. I once heard a very prominent um, lived experience expert say, you know, if prostitution is the oldest living profession then childhood sexual abuse has to be the oldest living training Mm. for it. Mm. Because no one just knows how to sell sex. Mm. You don't just wake up and know how to do it. But you do wake up every day and have broken boundaries. You do oftentimes, if you're being sex trafficked as a teenager, miss school and never earn your graduate, your high school degree, right? You don't go on to school. You don't go on and have other opportunities. And so when we... Take the time to talk about legalization. I think, quite honestly, decriminalize people who are being forced to sell sex. They're not criminals. Anyone who is, and, and I don't like using the word prostitute or sex worker because what, I think what, we what need to say yeah. a person who is selling sex or engaging in sex. Okay. And I am saying that as an outsider, I don't have any experience. Right, Like it's never, has never been part of my livelihood. I've never engaged in it. And so as an outsider, I owe it to folks to have more respect and use person-centered language, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we're talking about not criminalizing them and instead using what's been called the Nordic model, so you actually put the onus on the sex buyers, that's very different. But legalizing, so... This is going to be a really long segment. When I was an undergrad, um, before I started in the anti-sex trafficking fields, my the precursor to my senior thesis was on um, Nevada brothels because they're the only legal form of engaging in commercial sex in the United States. Right. Right. There's a lot of parameters, like you have to be in a community x amount of like with x amount of a population or less. Um, parameters that are in place, but in these brothels, um, I interviewed a person. There was two TV shows when I was an undergrad that were on that were on brothels. One was called like the Bunny Ranch, and one was called the Chicken Ranch.
0: HBO.
1: Yeah, and and Sundance <coughs> Channel. Okay. And so for my senior thesis, we had to interview someone with lived experience or someone who was in the industry that we were researching, and I couldn't get anyone to respond to me. And I, you know, I made a call. I was calling the brothels, little naive Sarah. And I was like, I really want to talk to someone, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, can I get your first name? Okay, can I get your last name? Sure. What school are you from? Gave it to them. I said, okay, you just put, you just have been put on a blacklist. Don't ever call any of the brothels again. No one wants to talk to you. Really? And they said... If you wanted – or this is the office of a lobbyist who was lobbying for Nevada brothels. And I was like, well, that was scary. What am I going to do now? But I was eager and determined. I finally connected with someone, a woman who worked in the brothels via Facebook. And she said – and this is very long time ago, 2009. And she said – "Um." the only reason why she responded to my Facebook message was because I asked please. And so she allowed me to interview, to conduct an interview with her. So we do this interview. And, you know, it was before I really knew or understood a lot about the sex industry. And looking back, you know, she talked about, um, intergenerational, like commercial sexual activity. So like, her mom had engaged in, like, or her grandma in the community that she was from had started, like, the first storefront brothel where um, people would come and and purchase sex while, you know, going there for other um, activities as well. And so it was, like, this intergenerational aspect. She was sexually abused as a child. Um, She, even though, you know, she was quote unquote choosing to do it she was she had a pimp and her and a lot of people she explained had pimps quote unquote that's what she called them um and she explained that people who worked in the brothels only made I think it was like 50 percent went to the house and went to the brothel and so they only got like 50 percent and when they were working in the brothels They had to stay there for extended periods of time so you couldn't like go for like a weekend you had to stay there for like four to five weeks
0: you couldn't leave you
1: couldn't leave you and the only time you could leave is when you would get permission to go get an sti check and then when you left she said well if they really liked you sometimes they would let you stay out a little longer and you can like go to a movie but that's only if they really liked you and if they trusted you and so you know all of these parameters were in place and i was like i thought well, if we made it legal then it would be safer and women would have more choice but she really explained to me no there's not a lot of choice and there's not a lot of money but that's not how she had packaged it like it was like well this is just how it is and it's fine hmm. but the more i thought about it I was like but is that fine is it fine that you're only allowed to leave to get an sti check and you're telling me that the STI check isn't to protect you. It's to protect the sex buyers. Because if you get an STI, you're done. Pack your bags and go. Like, you, they don't want you in the brothel. Or if, you, if something happens, in every single room, there's a safety button. And that button, if something happens, you're supposed to be able to press it. And it goes to, immediately to law enforcement. And she said you don't press that button unless you're about to die because you don't want the brothel. Doesn't want people to know that there are think like that. There's lack of safety or their problems or issues. They don't want that kind of attention from law enforcement. And you're, if you're always the brothel that it's calling law enforcement, that's an issue. And so, you know, very quickly it, I learned that legalizing it doesn't make it safer for the people who are selling sex. It, it makes their money taxable. It makes it safer for the people purchasing sex. You know, they still had traffickers. What if our ultimate aim and our ultimate goal in legalization is to, you know, serve, protect people, serve them or have them like have safer scenarios, then we need to think outside of just this box of prostitution. yes legal, it's okay. And instead think like, okay, well, what other opportunities are you interested in? What else would you like to learn how to do? And that's something, you know, that nonprofit I mentioned earlier, Katha, they have like a restaurant where the women cook food, the women that live in the brothels cook, and then they distribute and they sell it right and so creating other opportunities they teach women how to sew I mean seamstresses right and like not just low-level jobs of like I'm going to teach you how to be a barista I think that's great yes but we need but we know that we don't have a minimum wage that people can live off of and thrive and you know even meet their basic needs and so teaching other skills teaching coding Teaching, you know, things that can actually result in life changes.
0: And not somebody just being stuck doing that right. same job. I think there this is the United States of America where we're we have this fascination with people being able to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. but there's very little protections that come along with that sometimes. People are oftentimes taken advantage of right. when we use the term freedom or right. or the right to do whatever you want, to so someone's being taken advantage of. And essentially what you're saying is legalizing prostitution, maybe people should have the right to do what they want, but there should also be some protections
1: right. involved. Yeah, and I think it's asking the questions, is this really what you wanna do? Yeah. Like, okay, so we made it legal, but it wasn't for those people, it was for the sex buyers, it was for their safety, it's for their you know, protection. If we, it's right now, it's illegal. If we decriminalize the people who are selling sex, <coughs> We don't have to make "quote unquote" prostitution legal, but we can decriminalize to protect those the, folks.
0: The, to protect them, to protect right, the to victims.
1: Get them. Why do we have to route them to the criminal justice system that is punitive in nature and often not rehabilitative and only creates more tra- trauma for people? Why? You know, like there is there are courts that exist, and it's like one human trafficking court, for example. And if a person who receives um, a quote-unquote prostitution charge if they're arrested and detained on that instead of the like 90 days that they might be detained or up to 90 days this court says okay well we're gonna put 90 days in a uh, therapeutic treatment instead right and so like rerouting folks from these like really these punitive systems into services I think would be more beneficial
0: yeah. It sounds a lot like well, some of my concerns that you have about something like uh Excuse me. Um, what was the term that you used? I want to
1: commercial sexual activity. Commercial or, sexual.
0: activity. I'm trying to change the yeah, way that I approach using you, I my vocabulary. It. it sounds a lot like what you're what you're um, what you're speaking on when we talk about legalization of, right. of drugs. That's not right. as simple to just legalize. There's other things to consider also.
1: Right. You know, there is. So I've been in the field since 2014 mm-hmm. and I've seen this I've seen shifting paradigms of how we are thinking about responding to and talking about sex trafficking. And so we've have have had this shift of like well children who are you know engaged in commercial sex are quote unquote prostitutes. And then it was like okay but Now we're saying they're sex trafficked, so federally defining them as sex trafficked. So now children who we once deemed as criminals are now victims, right? And so, and we need to save them, quote unquote. Mm. And now we're moving away from that and we're like, okay, well actually we need to recognize that they're survivors and they have resilience and they're resilient and there's all of these other factors at play. I think we should shift it even more so and just recognize that they're human beings and people with experiences. Um, But to go back to this idea of like the savior complex is really very present in the anti-trafficking field and, you know, the white savior complex as well. Sex trafficking is so complex and it's so convoluted but oftentimes, we see it as, you know, folks see it as, well, we just need to rescue these kids. And when we rescue them, they, this idea of rescuing also creates this narrative of the perfect victim. So this victim is going to be so thankful for services. They're going to be really glad. They're yeah. not going to fight back. They're going to do this. And that's not the reality. Right. Because there's trauma And there's all of this other stuff happening at the same time that, you know, well-meaning folks are like, wait, why is this person rejecting my help? I'm just trying to help them. Or why aren't they doing this? Or why, you know, all of these questions. But we've created this narrative of what it means to be a victim. And we've also created this narrative of like this white victim, victimized child where, you know, majority of folks being trafficked are kids of color they're people of color they're also boys they're not just girls they're transgender youth but we have this poster child and that is really you know partly the development of that was very intentional to get people to pay attention because we know that this country is racist and if you put a poster of a black child people might not pay attention in the same way that they would a white child and so part of it was constructed so that people would pay attention but also when we think about it you know we have to move away from that narrative because it's inaccurate and then we have all of these folks like serving and working who are well-intentioned but are completely disconnected from the populations that they're serving right like if you look at nonprofits and they are a service providing organization or an advocacy organization every single person is a white male on the board or primarily white males and a couple white females all of the 98 percent of the clients they serve are kids of color they're not going to be representative of who or really be able to support what the needs are making sure that what's offered is culturally relevant and i feel like i'm all over the place but
0: no, you're 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 on tie. It's okay.
1: <laughs> I feel like I mean, I have so much to say and I don't think an hour could do justice, but I feel like the narrative we need to do away with this narrative of there is this one type of victim. This victim is a young white person and or that, you know, anybody could be exploited when we know that there are certain, you know, factors like your race, if you're a racial and ethnic minority young person, like having a history of sexual abuse, right? Like there's a continuum of abuse that's happening here and recognizing that all of these things are making some folks more vulnerable than others.
0: Yeah. So I mean, to make sure that we're on the same page, it's essentially it, well, I would say it's a good thing that people are interested, but there's another layer to it that people sometimes forget because it's so somewhat glamorous to save someone, to right. to bring someone from a, a place where their life is in danger, and putting them in a place where they think yeah. they're they're saved. But there's more work to put in after right. after they're removed from that, that dangerous situation that they don't quite have a, a firm grasp
1: yeah. as how to
0: offer that help.
1: Yeah, and I think we need to you know move away from the savior complex that we're saving people. Hmm. You know, like if you want to do good work why do you have to be the savior you don't you don't have to be a savior i don't have to be a savior to include the voices and perspectives of children and young adults who have histories of sex trafficking i can actually you know include their perspectives through research and take myself out of it in terms of like this isn't about me doing this great work it's actually about creating and implementing approaches that are more person-centered right like it's It's about the person. It's about the human aspect of it. We're not here to save anyone.
0: What other changes have you noticed um, since 2014?
1: Um, You know, definitely more awareness. I think there's more legislation. More legislation doesn't necessarily mean better because there might be more legislation on, you know, having states or counties implement protocols to identify sex trafficked folks but oftentimes there's no funding behind it and so states and communities are responsible for responding and have no resources to do it Mm. um you know we still don't we're so far from where we need to be i think unfortunately it ebbs and flows with leadership as well and so you know there might be big pushes of like we care there's national campaigns let's do stuff let's you know let's hold this press meeting and ha- n- let people know that they should care about it um, but then for example the trump administration a lot of conversations like oh ivanka trump is doing a lot president trump is doing a lot mm. but no one was having conversations about how racist his practices were there's a um, advisory board in the white house of sur- people who had lived experience quote unquote survivors no one was talking about how he wanted it to be an all-white survivor board right like i have folks who with lived experience that were like yeah he didn't want the people he didn't want the black women he didn't want the people of color to be part of it right like people aren't having that conversation they're not talking about how under trump less federal prosecutions of traffic traffickers have happened right and so i think that it it's going to ebb and flow unfortunately You know there might be more legislation but it doesn't mean that there's funding to support it and it doesn't mean that the legislation is comprehensive either you know we have more safe harbor laws as of you know 2018 i think there was like 32 safe harbor laws so special legislation specifically for minors who are exploited But the legislation varies widely state to state. And we still have places across the country that are arresting children on quote-unquote prostitution charges instead of realizing that they are victims or they have been exploited.
0: Hmm. If I gave you, let's say $500 million, (laughs) I don't know, just a blank check. (laughs) I think you know where I'm going with this question. If I gave you a blank check to influence or to give resources wherever you deem fit, legislation-wise, what would change? What would you, what do you think would be beneficial?
1: I think that we need more prevention strategies. We need to, you know, it's not just about intervening in aftercare, like we need to prevent trafficking. And it's oftentimes, it's really investing in communities, right? Like investing and in closing some of those vulnerabilities that communities might have. Um, I think we need to target culture, you know, and I think, you know, you're talking specifically about policy and it's an important question, but I think it moves beyond legislative policy and moves towards social policy sure. also. Yeah. Like what makes it okay for folks to feel emboldened to go and buy and buy someone for sex for an hour, knowing that that person looks malnourished, knowing that that person probably doesn't have a high school education, right? All of these factors that are at play, what makes it okay? I did some preliminary research in the red light district of Tijuana, Mexico. We used to sit in this area um, and we would watch the peep sex buyers walk in and out of the red light district and oh. when we were watching it was predominantly white men white older men they were walking in with their rings on their fingers clearly married mm. at nine o'clock in the morning
0: just just a regular walking day, in regular friday
1: taking their pick mm. of the people that they wanted to purchase sex from right and these women who are standing outside of these brothels you know that's their livelihood they're doing it so that they can send money back home to their village, to their community, to their children. And these men just walk in, throw money like it means nothing, and then walk out and go and pick up their kids from soccer practice. What makes it okay in our society that that is happening? Well, this person who is basically forced to sell their bodies because of lack of other resources and means, mm-hmm. Then has to go and have sex with other like 20 other random strangers throughout the day. Nobody wakes up and says, Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go and have sex with these random anonymous people. People wake up and say, I need something to eat, I need somewhere to live, I don't have any other resources, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you're 15 or 25, like. You need these basic things to be fulfilled, right. and oftentimes it's folks without it's what other means do you have
0: hmm. so socially it's more of a also instilling more empathy in people in our society, but also i, I guess socially we'll also be trying to lift up people that would be in that situation where right. they need to where they need to engage right. and such, um do something like that
1: and you know also aside from instilling empathy, I think it's dismantling patriarchy and sexism and racism and all of these other forms of discrimination Hmm. right like you know also trans folks who are exploited and then murdered because folks go to a man will go to buy sex not realizing that that person also has a penis will do whatever they want with them and then murder them like that's also very real we have to dismantle All of these forms of discrimination that says, well, you're different than me and I don't like you and so I'm gonna do whatever I want to your body.
0: You've talked a lot about all the things that you've seen. You've been in this field since 2014. One of the questions that I have for you and even for your colleagues is how you're managing the things that you've seen, the experiences that you've had. What, What do you and your colleagues do to take care of yourselves?
1: Well, compassion, fatigue, burnout is very, very real. Um, And, you know, I think for the folks in this field that are still in this field, we learned really early on, like you have to take care of yourself and not just physically and emotionally, but spiritually, like on every single level, Mm -hmm. you have to take care of yourself. And for me, it's like, well, I have to go for a run today because I need my mind to be clear. Or I have to work out. Or I have to eat right. Because if I don't, I know that, you know, if I have a stomach ache, it's going to affect how I feel mental, like my whole body, right? And so like eating right, definitely spirituality. I go to church. I've gone to church and served at church since 2015, 2014, no, 2013, 14. Um but going to church and really like I read my Bible <laughs> when I pray, yeah, I watch, I listen to Christian music, you know, like you see evil in the real world. you see the way that people lack complete and total empathy like you have to hold on to something that's higher and bigger.
0: you're more aware of it than most people are. Oh,
1: for sure. I mean there was I the first time I had vicarious trauma, I um. It was after the interview, these folks, um, with these kids, and this trafficker. And then we drive on what's called the track, and it's like the physical street where people are soliciting. Oftentimes, there's a lot of children out there who are being sex trafficked. And so we drive past them, and I'm with a law enforcement agent, and um, he stops, and we kind of, we talk with some of them. And... I just remember feeling so physically ill because we couldn't do anything in real time. There was no, we talked to them, but we couldn't, we weren't intervening, we weren't, you know, doing anything. And I went back to my home and I thought, I don't know if I need to shower to wash this off of me or throw up Mm. to get it out of me, Mm. but I have to do something. And I went in my shower and I cried and threw up. Mm. And I was like, this is just so much. Like, no one person can handle this. No one community can handle this, right? Like, it takes an entire, like, villages and villages and villages if we really want to stop this, Um but, a a and, cultural shift Yeah, we I talked mean, about earlier. We, have, we need a cultural shift. We need folks who are going to say, yes, I actually care, yes, I'm going to, you know, become trained, yes, I'm going to help build policies and protocols and procedures to respond to it, yes, I'm going to, you know, do something more than just absolutely nothing and turn away and then feel really bad about it for like an hour and forget that it happened. But all of that to say, you know, I, I have this moment of vicarious trauma, I was throwing up, I was crying. And then I was like, once I I was done, I literally went in bed and I read my Bible. And I was like, I have to hold on to the Lord that I serve Mm. because I can't do this alone. And no one person can. Mm. And so, you know, really, I think just taking care of yourself. And most people in this field overwork and they're exhausted all the time and they're burnt out because there's so much to do. And it's like you never feel like you're doing enough because there's always so much more to do but i think that's why we need more people to care and to do stuff and like to join the field into you know whether whatever it is what it could be research it could be direct service it could be volunteering it could be creating care packages right donating money whatever it is that's in your sphere
0: so if someone were interested in giving support or getting more involved in in your field of study. How would they go about that?
1: Um, I would say attend training. Los Angeles County offers free trainings through the Department of Probation on commercial sexual exploitation, specifically of children. Um, I would say you know look at what nonprofits exist around you, what programs exist. Um, if you have the financial means, you know donate money to organizations that are doing the work on the ground, so that people who are doing direct service don't have to you know, cry themselves to sleep because not only are they burnt out, but they can't afford a new car or they can't afford their own basic needs to be met. Um, I would say you know, just look to see, look around and see what's out there. It's not about, I think, we don't need to reinvent the wheel and create new programs and services necessarily. I think we could build on what exists and then move from there. Um, look at documentaries about what's happening i would be really mindful of not to take movies like taken to heart and believe that that is what sex trafficking is you know maybe in some places that has occurred but it's a hollywood film and so you know connecting with what already exists look for look on youtube at the videos of folks with lived experience telling their stories, you can do the homework and do the research without ever having to ask a survivor to tell them, to tell you their story, right? Like look for volunteer research opportunities. If you want to be a researcher, look for labs that are doing this work and seeing how you can get involved. Um, I would say that for men in particular, I think we need more men to join this field We need more men who are really passionate about working against exploitation of children and people in general. Um, But don't be surprised if you're a man and a service provider says, well, no, we actually don't want you to volunteer with this population. We want you to do something and we want you to put together gift bags or something that's not direct service. Mm -hmm. Because we know that most men and traffickers are – or most traffickers and sex buyers are men. And a lot of organizations and agencies are protective and they don't want to re-traumatize the people that they're serving. And so I think, you know, follow the lead of the people actually doing the work within your space and locality. Um, I would say do not go rogue and go to places where you believe sex trafficking is happening and try to intervene in the field on the ground.
0: Does that happen? It's
1: really dangerous. It's dangerous. Yes, I mean, you setting up stings so that sex buyers will come and then you shame them. You know, there's this vigilante movement of people doing things like this. And it's like people are doing things legally and organizations are working with law enforcement to disrupt sex trafficking and sex buying, right? And if other organizations or people groups come in and they're like, well, we want to do this and so we're going to, you know, go rogue and do something i think it just puts people's lives at risk and so just being mindful that things might already be happening and so look to see what is happening in your space before potentially disrupting something that could have been really impactful
0: Um, i'm very surprised people people do that they
1: i mean there's been definitely organizations and like groups where they might set up um like a reverse sting where they want like People to, to catch come. a predator yeah type. and then they'll like shame that person and then that could be disruptive of what law enforcement is doing if law enforcement is following those people or having you know investigating something and so yeah just being mindful i think we might have the idea that we want to do something and we should do something um but don't go rogue, you know, see, see what's out there and see how you can use your skills to be most beneficial.
0: Be responsible about yeah. it. Yeah. There are people out there that are experts such as yourself that know what they're doing. Go to the experts before you decide to, you know, yeah. do something on your own. Yeah. I wasn't aware that was going on. Okay. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you for stopping by. I think you did a fantastic. Okay. You were so nervous before we started. You did a fantastic job.
1: <laughs> I always get nervous before I talk in front of people, I guess. Damn. All these people. <laughs> a
0: few dozen. A few dozen max. You're fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: yeah, we had a lot of technical difficulties before we started, but I think we I think we got through it. Okay. Ah! Ah!